Welcome to Leveraging Leadership, where we unpack the art of business leadership. I'm your host, Emily Sander, Chief of Staff turned Executive Leadership Coach. In this series, we dive into the role of Chief of Staff, exploring how it can be a game changer and pivotal player on your leadership team. You'll get a backstage pass and learn about the different aspects of the role and what it takes to excel in it. We'll hear from some incredible guests who have firsthand experience serving as Chief of Staff or collaborating with one on their team. And don't forget, the Chief of Staff isn't just a title of person, it represents a leadership philosophy. Leveraging leadership is all about finding your points of greatest influence and leveraging them to better serve those around you. Welcome back. We have a special guest on today. So Rahul Desai is here with me and he has an illustrious background. He is a former chief of staff. He is a multi-time founder and co-founder of several companies. And he is now the general manager of the chief of staff network. So welcome. Hi, it's great to be here. Yes, thank you so much for joining. We have a, a lot of good stuff for people, but to start off with, can you just, so when I, I'm obviously in the chief of staff space, and when I first started, I was trying to look for resources. And I was like, there's associations and networks and communities and Slack messages and job boards and all these different things. And I was trying to figure out what each of these entities did. So can you just start us off with a high-level overview of, of the chief of staff network and, and what it does and what it provides? Yeah, absolutely. So the chief of staff network is basically a membership organization for corporate chiefs of staff. Um, we've been around eight years now, and really what we focus on is being a place where you can come to get peer support on your business problems. The most common thing that we hear from chiefs of staff and that I personally felt as a chief of staff was, wow, this role is so lonely. Often, you know, you're the only one and you're dealing with confidential problems and there's nowhere you can turn. And so we have tried to solve that problem of having a really catered sort of walled garden for chiefs of staff, whatever you bring here stays here. And so the way that manifests in tactical terms is there's a Slack group. The Slack group has 900 chiefs of staff and heads of ops and directors of special projects and all of the sort of allied professions and titles that do this kind of work um, representing every continent in the world. And so that's why we use Slack. We really want people to feel included and not feel like there's a barrier because of geography, time zone, culture, anything like that. Um, and so that Slack is active every single business day. I think the shriek has gone on at least over a year now that wow. I've been able to track. Um, and typically people are getting a minimum of one to two responses. Average is more like three to eight. And then we do see upwards of 10 to 20 in some cases as well. So for example, when uh, Silicon Valley Bank was falling apart last yeah. year, every post about that 20 or 30 responses easy. Wow. Um, so Slack is sort of the backbone, right? It's the way that people have their daily driver, a place that they can vent or bring problems or anything like that. Beyond that, we do virtual events every single week. And so next week, we've got one coming up about how chiefs of staff can leverage AI to do their work a lot faster. The week after that, we've got a Columbia professor coming to talk about leadership. Um, to wrap up December and last year, I actually presented uh, a little bit of the salary data to our members. Um, but I think we'll do a little bit more wholesome treatment here today of that. And then we also do in-person meetups. And so in New York, we've got a pretty sizable chapter. We do something pretty much every single month there. We just had a Sydney, Australia meetup. We've oh, got wow. a national meeting up coming up this month. 
we've done Paris recently. We've got London coming up. Um, I think we've got a Seattle one planned. So basically anywhere that we can find shoots of staff, we really want them to feel there is a local community here. There's a building presence of this role because what we are seeing in the market is actually the real is the role is still not as well known as we think it should be relative to the outsized impact that these people tend to have. Um, and then sort of the last thing to wrap up what we offer is one-on-one introductions to other members, coaching, mentorship, all of that kind of stuff. And that's more of an ad hoc offering that people can ask for. And we try and structure uh, what we're offering based on what that person is looking for. So sometimes, you know, I'll be doing a resume review with someone. And, you know, in another case, someone might say, hey, my company is about to get acquired. It's really hush hush. I've never done this before. Can you find me someone who's been acquired? And then we'll link up a couple members who, you know, that will double opt in. So it's all like above board and no one's being put on the spot. Um, but actually just today, someone said, hey, I need to connect at Andreessen Horowitz. Can you make it happen? And uh, within 10 minutes of looking around, I need the person to connect and we had it done. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So is that mostly you doing the connecting and networking and hey, yeah, I Yeah. So I we've got a new. couple, we've got a member directory that people can search on their own. We also have an opt-in program that we run every Monday and you basically say, I'd like to connect with someone this week. And then we have an algorithm that just runs and finds people who might be a good fit with each other. Um, and then if you need something more bespoke, yes, someone on the team, whether it be myself or one of my colleagues will make that connection. Yeah, I didn't know that. So I researched and I didn't know about that piece of it. So that's, I think that's really beneficial for people. So I guess I could be doing a better job on the no, website. No, no, no. Yeah, no, you're doing so much. <laughs> um, and then I have also like the the piece of chief of staff network that I've we use personally is the job board or kind yeah. of you send out the email with the different listings for for each week. Exactly. So you have that as well. Yeah, so that's actually just a free service that we put out there for goodwill. Um, you know, the market's been tough for people these last couple of, you know, year and a half now at this point. And so the job board is really our way of helping people wayfind during a really tough time in the broader market. Uh, and that's completely available to the public. You know, you don't need to be a paying member. Or you don't need to subscribe or anything. It's just a free newsletter. And uh, we do it because it matters. That's it really helps it. people out, but it's also like, it's just interesting to me to see the job descriptions and see what people are asking for, or see how they're kind yeah. of framing up the role. So I just skim through that when it comes each week, just for, just for that. But certainly if you're, if you're looking for a chief of staff role, then I would highly suggest you check out that resource because it just comes in your inbox um, every week and you can take a look. Yeah. The, mention- the URL, if I could just say yes, it's of chiefofstaff.network slash jobs. And that'll be that free job board that we've been talking about. Okay, beautiful. And we'll have that in the show notes too. You had mentioned your international presence. And I was like, that's, you were mentioning like Australia and Paris and all these things. And I'm like, that's truly an international presence. I'm just curious, do you see any major differences to chiefs of staff in one region versus another? Like, oh, in America, chief of staff is this, whereas in London or in Europe, it's more like this. Yeah. So the one thing you'll notice when I share the salary data is people in North America and the U.S. in particular just get paid vastly more than anywhere else. Okay. And that's true in the cases of base cash. It's true on bonus. It's true on equity, um, which is in some ways interesting and in some ways not so interesting. I think there's just been lots of competition for talent in the tier one cities here, and that's inflated a lot of things. But more interestingly, I think in terms of the role itself is 
It's very well structured in North America, in the UK, and to a lesser degree in uh, Australia and Canada. But um, in sort of Eastern Europe, Africa, like Middle East, people still sometimes confuse it with an EA role or something that is not strategic in nature. And that's something that has been difficult for us as we try and expand internationally is that folks, you know, in, for example, like in India or Singapore, they know that role in a government context or perhaps in a military context. They don't really know about it in a corporate context. And so if someone, you know, some people, especially at the multinationals that maybe have offices across Europe, Asia, you know, North America, that's where I'm finding chief of staff roles in some of these regions that have it less developed. But um, in those places, the people face headwinds where often they'll encounter someone, they might be working on a strategic partnership, and the partner might say, well, why am I dealing with you? You're just the EA, Um, right? Okay, yeah. Um, And that seems to be a very taxing and I think in some ways very disheartening situation for those people. And so hopefully... What I've always seen is that our membership has been a lagging indicator of how prevalent the role is in any given region. What I'm really hoping to see in the next year or two is that that role globally gets the level of respect that we see in U.S., Canada, U.K. Yeah, well, I mean, all across the board, it's the chief of staff was in military and politics and these different areas. And so it's relatively new to the corporate business world. And then I'm sure there's staggered stages within that. And it's interesting to hear about regions. I was actually um, catching up with someone in Germany and she has a company that takes EAs and then helps them develop the skills to get into more senior level roles. And so, you know, different operations and different legal and product and all these things. And she had reached out to me because she read my book and said, chief of staff is now becoming one of those landing places for uh, a high-performing EA. And so she wanted yeah. to know more about that role and what it looked like in the U.S. So I thought that was that was very interesting um, to talk to her about that. But very cool. So you've mentioned this salary report a couple of times, and I know that's a huge, huge question that people ask. I get asked that question a whole bunch. And can you first talk about how you collected this salary data? So how kind of what's the, what's the source material behind this? And I know you and I have talked about this uh, separately where you personally have spent a lot of time and analysis um, in this. So can you give us a backdrop? Yeah, absolutely. So the report has just gotten bigger and bigger over time. We started doing this back in 2020, and it was admittedly a very limited data set back then. And over time, what we've been doing is drawing on our membership and then the people who are sort of in the periphery of the community, that being the people who maybe follow us on LinkedIn or those who are subscribed to our jobs newsletter, And so we're trying to collect the maximum amount of data because we want this to be statistically significant and representative for people. And so this year, we collected about 400 data points, which I think is it's actually more than a percent of all of the for-profit chief of staffs in the world. And uh, I think what that gives us is about a 97.5% confidence interval that the data and the conclusions will basically hold broadly. And the one thing that I'm really proud of this year is the feedback we've gotten historically is well, hey, this data has such North America skewness. What about Asia or what about Africa? And so we've tried really, really hard to expand our data collection in those other regions. And I think we've done the best job ever. You know, there's room to continue improving on this, but compared to our past efforts, I think 
Now you can look at this and say, well, okay, I can draw a conclusion for mainland Europe, or I can draw a conclusion for South Asia. Um, so yeah, that's how we collected the data. And we sent out a type form. We have basically tweaked this form over the years. And so we've tried not to bias people. We've done all of the good you know, data collection research things that people tend to do. Um, and then the analysis is really just me with a spreadsheet doing tons <laughs> and tons of work for like a week. Um, and then let me say a collective thank you for that, by the way, because I, I know it helps people. So thank you for taking the time. Well, it's a labor of love and I enjoy data analysis. You know, that is definitely a chief of staff skill. Um, it's also a biz op skill and I've done both of those things and it's a part of the job I enjoy. So yeah, definitely happy to do this for the global chief of staff community. So helpful. Yeah. Thank you so much. So, um, you know, take us through, I, I guess I often get asked the question, Emily, so I'm a, you know, I'm a chief of staff and I want a new chief of staff role, or I'm an EA and I want to become a chief of staff. How much should I ask for? And I'm mm. like, it depends. Like, it depends where you are. It depends on the industry. Yes. It depends on your experience. Like, it depends on the scope of the chief of staff version, version of chief of staff you're going for all these different things. So if someone were to ask you, you know, how much should a chief of staff be making or how much does a chief of staff make? Where do you start answering that question? It's a very hard and multifaceted question as you're, you know, as you're getting at. Um, I can actually screen share the data and we can talk through Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you're watching this on YouTube, then you can see this. And then if not, we'll kind of talk, talk you through if you're listening. Yeah, I'll definitely make sure to post over as much as possible. And then I'll also give you the link to put in the show notes. And this is a completely free resource. So no one has to pay for it or anything like that. Um so yeah, we just published this report in November of last year. So the data is pretty fresh. We did our collection effort uh, over September and October. So it's not stale data that we're looking at. You know, it's not from a year ago or anything like that. But to answer the question of what should a chief of staff expect to make, um, what we see is the global average in our data set is about 131,000. And what we did was bifurcate that data. So the global average is actually brought down by regional data in Asia and Africa. Um, so if you take English-speaking regions only, like US, Canada, Europe, Australia, the average is about 144K. And either of those data points is actually somewhat interesting because it represents compression from what we saw last year, which was an average about 153K. Hmm. Um, so that's like the base number. You know, if you're going to take away a number... 144 in sort of the Western world and 131 for the globe, you know, as a whole is going to be what you're really thinking about. Um, and then we do break this down by level of chief of staff. So we've got a leveling framework. The link is included in uh, in this report here. And so what we see is that more junior chiefs of staff are earning around 70K and pretty senior chiefs of staff are earning uh, above 180. And there's... Um, basically min and max bands that I'll show on the next page here. So a pretty senior chief of staff can be earning in the range of $500,000 in base cash. So the, the ceiling is is pretty far up there. Um, and, and so who what would that see, be just, just like in real life? Like who would, what type of chief of staff? Yeah. yeah. So actually I was chatting with one of these people just this morning and typically what, where are you going to find these folks is, pretty senior at a fortune 500 company okay so it's probably a chief of staff to an evp or a cxo at your microsoft's your goldman's your facebook's okay. 
um, where you know those companies obviously have a reputation for paying top dollar already. And if you're a chief of staff at that type of company serving that seniority of a leader, really, by definition, you're already a senior director or a VP in your own right. Um, and so you're earning commensurate salary to you know those titles, even though your title may be just chief of staff minus the director of the VP. Okay. Okay. You got different levels here. So if we can exactly. like just five levels and you kind of work through based on experience. Yeah. So the levels, we actually do have a leveling framework on our blog. It's also completely free to access. And so what we differentiate on is what is the responsibility you're doing as a chief of staff at each of these levels? So as an associate, you're still doing mostly that EA work. It's scheduling, expense management, travel management, things like that. At the junior manager level two area, you're starting to take on some self-directed projects, but you're mostly still being guardrailed by your principal on what you're working on. Level three is really where you start to do work on your own, right? You're doing some self-directed projects. Um, maybe those are things like OKR, strategic planning, things like that. At level four, you're really starting to manage a team, right? This is where it becomes office of the CXO or you know program management office or something like that, where it's not just you, it's you possibly managing the EA for your executive and maybe managing a project management professional of some sort. Um, and so obviously commensur commensurately higher salary comes with that, higher seniority comes with that. And really at this point, you may be off on your own dealing with special projects. So you may be taking on a partnership or, uh, you know, maybe you're betting yourself in the go-to-market function and trying to help out there. And so really here, you're being treated as, if not an executive, really close to that executive level. Okay. And then finally, that level five is what I was mentioning. It's someone really, really senior. Uh, at this point, if you're at a startup, the office of the CEO is pretty built out. There's probably three to five professionals working under you. And then at one of those larger companies, you are maybe overseeing thousands of people on the behalf of your executive. And uh, the gentleman I was speaking to this morning is at Microsoft and his org is something on the order of 8,000 people. Yeah. Um, and so he's like, yeah, I'm definitely top of band here. Uh, <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's so interesting. And I think it it seems like as you progress through the levels, it's a level of scope and responsibility, but also independence and, you know, you're operating on your own and, and taking things on um, without without direction at every little step of the way. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the thing that I would recommend people take away from this chart, especially, is that the range of min to max and even the range of 25th percentile to 75th percentile, which are represented by the rectangular blue blocks there, they're pretty wide in the grand scheme of things. And what that really represents is something you were getting at earlier in, in terms of talking about the job board. The roles and responsibilities are highly variable, even within a level, right? Even within a level one, you know, one job may have pure calendar management, and that might be the low end of the band. And then some role that maybe is level one also has a travel component involved, and you're helping prep the executive for sales calls or something like that. And that might be higher up in the band. Um, so really what I think this represents is the amount and the variability of responsibilities from company to company. So it's interesting in the level five, um, category, I'm trying to describe this verbally to people. Um, the band for that is quite wide. It's like, it's, it's yeah. larger than the others. And the yeah. lower part of the level five band 
is equal to some of the level one, two, three, and four. So I'm wondering is it, what makes it like that? Is that when you're at a startup, you have kind of your level five because everything is the office of the of the CEO or kind of what yeah. makes that range so broad? So I really chalk the bottom end up to some of the other regions in the world. So for example, okay. a really good lucrative wage in Kenya, for example, or Nigeria, it's going to be much lower than what that wage looks like in a London or okay. a Manhattan. This is global so, data. Exactly. Okay. And so that's what represents some of the skewness, both on the high end and on the low end. Yes. I think what you would really want to draw your main conclusions from is that middle 50% range. And so you see that basically linearly scales up by your level. Okay. Interesting. All right. Got it. Yeah. Um, but really, to talk about some of the other factors we can keep moving on here, headcount is actually really explanatory. So what we've seen based on this data, right, it's got a correlation coefficient of 0.875, which means that 87.5% of variability in chief of staff salary is actually explained by company size. Um, that is perhaps slightly overfit of a model, and we could have done a, a much more complicated multivariate regression. But uh, to some degree, I am lazy, and to some degree, I think that would actually be much more noisy than people could draw meaningful conclusions from. Um, but what we see is that, you know, if you're at like a seed stage company, one to 10 people, you're earning really on average about 100K. And then if you're at a company that's 50,000 people, you're earning about 200,000K. And what's interesting here is, yes, those there the chart shows a linear increase from the smallest companies to the biggest companies. But what I find really intriguing is there's a jump from 5,000 to, or rather from 500 to 5,000 to 50,000. And we see only slight increases, not scale of magnitude increases. But what I would expect, you know, is as the company jumps by scale of magnitude in headcount, you know, maybe people should be earning a scale of magnitude more in their pay. Um, and I think some of that does uh, get impacted in your equity compensation, right? The equity definitely does jump right. if you're earning RSUs at a Google versus like illiquid options at a Series C company or something <laughs> like that. Um, but yeah, interesting to see and definitely good to know that salary is highly impacted by headcount. So was um, I, was, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Was I hearing it correctly? You said, is it, is it accurate to say that out of all the factors that affect a chief of staff salary compensation. The biggest one is headcount. Is that the 87? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's, so that it's accounts for 87% really of it. Dragger. Wow. Okay. Although I, what I would also caution, and you know, maybe at some point I will go back and do the multivariate analysis. What we tend to see is that the size does correlate to other meaningful things like years of experience or level of seniority or things like that. And all of those are really bound up in increasing your salary. Okay. So they're kind of baked into this, this number. Exactly. Inherently, everything goes up. Okay. Exactly. This was just like the cleanest, you know, it's a nice line that goes up into the right. Yeah. <laughs> People can cool understand story. it. No, no, um, understood. Yes. Yeah. But what we also show on this page is breaking down headcount by level, right? I do want to give people some of the cross cuts of what, you know, are you an executive at a tiny company or are you an executive at a really massive company? Um, and so what we've seen last year and the past two years before that is there just really are correlations in this data of uh, what the size of the company is and what the seniority level is. 
Um, but what we do observe that's really interesting is 66% of level one chief staff, which is that junior associate type level, um, are really at companies between one to 50 in size. And 93% of the level two junior manager type is at companies between one to 200 in a headcount. And neither of those levels appeared at companies in excess of 10,000. And so that's interesting because that tells me that these very large companies are not hiring junior level chiefs of staff at all. They're hiring more of those executive type folks. Um, and that is actually something that we do see borne out on this chart here. You'll see that purple band that indicates 50,000 uh, at your level three, which is manager, level four, director, level five, executive, um, which is telling us, again, that you know at a 50,000 person Fortune 500 firm, what they're really looking for is senior people. Um, and then what we also see at level three is that 75% of those people are at one to 500 in a headcount. Um, over a quarter of our level four and level five folks appeared at companies between uh, 51 and 200. And interestingly, only 6% of those level five people appeared at companies of greater than 5,000. So okay. really the thing to draw here is a lot of our data does have startup skewness, and that's not surprising to me at all given that our membership is mainly startup chiefs of staff. We certainly have folks at those bigger companies, but what they seem to be attracted to is getting that breath of fresh air of, hey, what are the startups doing? How do I see around corners for this startup that might be coming for my lunch five or 10 years down the road? Um, so yeah, I'll pause there. Do you have any questions here? Yeah, so something that came up is just, are people self-reporting their level or do you collect that through a series of, of questions and then put them kind of in that group for reporting purposes? So people do self-report their level. Okay. Um, next year, it may be a good thing to come up with an algorithm that helps batch these people a little bit more. And I would be curious to see, does that actually change what we've seen on uh, this leveling framework and how it uh, interplays with some of the other elements? Because I'm wondering if you're a Fortune 50 company and your chart indicates they're looking for a senior person in the chief of staff role, are they going out saying, I need a level five chief of staff, or are they saying, I just need a chief of staff with commiserate experience and background? So typically they're saying the latter. Sometimes we do come across people who describe the role in terms of our framework, and that's very heartening. <laughs> uh, but it, it's certainly not as common as I would like. Uh, typically it is, as you described, you know, a set of roles and responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Those are, again, highly variable company by company or even department by department at the larger companies. Um, and so there is some element of self-selection, but we try and guardrail that by giving people our uh, leveling framework. And I'll send you the link to that and you can put that in the show notes as well because we've mentioned it a number of times here at this perfect. point. Yes, perfect. And then I, I want to continue with your um, presentation because this is very, very interesting. But one um, quick question, if someone is applying and interviewing for a chief of staff role and the company they're applying to has like chief of staff, they know they want a chief of staff, mm -hmm. but the hiring manager or HR person doesn't really understand the distinctions between these levels. Is, is there a way or have you, have you talked to people about how to have that conversation and place yourself within these levels? Yeah, absolutely. So Part of the reason why we do this report and a lot of the other reports is to equip people to have these conversations ah, okay. when they're going for a new job or going for that promotion. Um, and we've seen this be super effective in the world. Like we had someone recently who used this exact report to increase her equity compensation by 250%-ish. Okay. 
I remember correctly. Um, someone else just landed a senior chief of staff role paying 300K in base cash per year. Uh, so like the data works and that's really why we keep doing it and spending so much time being really meticulous about our analysis. Um, but what we typically recommend to people is, you know, use that leveling framework to equip yourself to be able to describe what you're going for, and then to also see the gap between what you want and what they're talking about in their JD. And we've actually had a lot of people come back and say, hey, I got an offer and I used this research that you guys have put out to kind of build my own job. That's awesome. Um, and so, yeah, people, th what we've seen is this role is so high stakes for executives because having a bad chief of staff is going to be more detrimental than basically having any other bad role at the company besides your other CXO type folks. Sure. Um, so, you know, if I'm CEO and, you know, Alice is my chief of staff and Alice and I are actually really poorly fit together to have this principal chief of staff relationship, that will actually increase the drag on my company by quite a lot. And so what we see is that the best founders or the best executives will actually be willing often to flex on roles, responsibilities, compensations, title, equity, you know, all the different levers they can pull to find that right person mm. and make sure that right person is happy. Because if you are in this chief of staff role and you're resentful because of one of these factors, that's also going to kill your productivity in the role. And I think a lot of these executives do understand that at this point in sort of the market cycle. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. It's a great tool for all these different types of conversations. Uh, please continue. I see you have a, a couple more couple more slides oh, here. Many more slides. Oh, so goodness, we don't have to yeah. go through all that. Maybe yeah, pull out the best ones. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll definitely focus on the main ones here. But um we do have uh, some analysis of education. I'm going to skip over that because it's actually kind of uninteresting. It's exactly what you would expect, which is why it's uninteresting. Um, what was interesting to me is average salary by years of experience. And so that increases basically linearly until you get to 20 plus years and then it falls off. Huh. And the expression you're making right now is befuddlement. And that is the expression I made when I saw this. <laughs> I'm like, 20 plus years? You should be pretty up yeah. there on your top. Um, but what, so the next chart beside, so one chart on this page for the people who are li listening is um, average salary by years of experience, relevant experience, actually. So I should be pretty um, open and honest, you know, relevant experience, not all experience. Um, and then we have another chart on this page, which is years of relevant experience broken down by your chief of staff level. And one of the most interesting things in that second chart is we're seeing some people with 20 plus years of experience coming in at level one and level two, which are, to remind folks, those junior levels. And so what that tells me is there are people making significant career changes later in life. Um, and that might be the driver of getting to that, you know, you're 20 plus years in a career, but you're coming into this role at a level one. Okay. Um, some of those archetypes are really someone who's been in a you know career EA. And then switching into that chief of staff role, you know, they built the self-confidence, they yes. maybe built a okay. reputation in industry, and now they're ready to step up their game a little bit. Um, so I think to some degree, that is what is the explanatory variable for why that 20 years has a drop off of almost 50K on average. Um, the secondary thing, and I'm going to flip down to, uh, we've got some analysis of gender on compensation. Um, 
And so what we see here is that uh, the 20 plus year cohort is actually all women in our data set. And those women were earning less. And so I think there is a couple things happening here. There is that uh, motherhood penalty that economists have talked about for a long time. Actually, an economist won the Nobel Prize this past year for talking about uh, the gender pay gap. Um, and so, you know, it is a little bit disappointing to see that happening, especially with people who are late stage in their careers. Um, and I will say it's probably looking like a double whammy of ageism, sexism, and then partially that late stage career change. Um, I suspect what may be happening is people are having a tough time articulating why they should be a more senior person because they're having to surmount, oh, my resume was EA for 10, 15 plus years. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that is something interesting that we now, see. Now, if I'm reading the bottom chart correctly, is yes. there, so is, so red's female exactly. and those are higher in, in the first couple. Yes. There. Yes. So for zero to 10 years of relevant experience, uh, females earn more than males. And I'll, I'll try and use that terminology rather than men and women or something like that. Um, this trend reverses in the next decade, the 11 to 20 mark. And I really do just chalk that up to motherhood penalty, right? Okay. If you're starting your career at age 22, most, you know, people who do the cheapest app role tend to be pretty highly educated. They tend to live in, uh, like tier one, tier two cities. And those people do hold off on having children, until their early to mid thirties is what, you know, most demographic data bears out. And so that seems like a pretty plain correlation in my eyes to what we're seeing here on this chart. And just out of curiosity, so why would, why would the female cohorts in the red, in the red bars be earning more for those first? I mean, are they just, are they just better at that job or how does, how does that explanation go? Yeah. Um, really good question. The chief of staff role on the whole just skews female. Okay. Like, there is actually massive skewness in the chief of staff role. A lot of that, I think, so I actually brought this up in the community at some point, and people were actually like very nervous to talk about why this is. It's like one of those DEI third rail type things that yeah. you don't want to touch because you might get in trouble for saying the wrong thing. Um, and so I don't actually know the exact reason for this because people don't talk about it and they're unwilling to talk yeah, about it. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Um, but what I would guess is I describe BizOps and Chief of Staff as two sides of the same coin. They're functionally the same job, but the Chief of Staff role has this service component, right? You are, in a lot of ways, you are serving your principal. That is what the role is about in a lot of ways other than the special projects and the project management and all that stuff. Really, it is improving the efficacy of your principle. The BizOps role doesn't have that service component. It is mostly about projects, and you get to control what projects you work on to a somewhat greater degree than chief of staff. And we see inverse gender breakdowns in both of <laughs> these. Okay. So men go to BizOps and women yeah. go to chief of staff in a lot of ways. And the articles in a lot of ways are fungible. And so then you have to ask, all right, if people have the same skills, if they're coming out of the same, you know, professions, whether that be professional services, you know, you're banking, you're consulting, um, 
or they've been in a startup in an ops role or strategy role, and this is the next step up. Well, why are men picking biz ops and why are women picking chief of staff? I would assert to you, and I don't actually have the data on this, but I would assert to you that it is that breakdown of men are more likely to chafe at serving someone else to the degree that a chief of staff has to serve their principal. And I think that women are just more comfortable with that. And we do have lots, like not me personally, but social science bears out this idea that women are much better at navigating these tough EQ interpersonal type situations, whereas men tend to be much more abrasive in some of these types of situations. And I would really assert to you that that is the causal factor here. Yeah. Awesome. Anything else um, super relevant you want to share? Anything exciting in there? Yeah. So I'll do, um, I'll skip over bonus and equity at this point, because we did talk about that sort of on the top of the hour. There's a lot of US skewness there. The data is all here and it is free for people. Yeah. Um, and there's some interesting like measures of central tendency. I shared mean, median, mode, standard deviation. So if you're clever at statistics, you can actually figure out quite a lot. Um, but what I will flip down to is career planning. And because that will okay. segue us, I think, somewhat nicely into our next little topic here about what do chiefs of staff do after the job? Yes. Um, but we asked people in this report, you know, why would you leave your job? And both last year and this year, the single biggest driver was lack of growth opportunities. And uh, about 25% of people cited that as being a reason I would leave. Um, this was a multi-select. And so we did some transforms to parse out uh, the data. But the next thing that changed year over year is business conditions. And so in 2022, that was the last place uh, sort of factor. People didn't care about that at all. And in 23, that jumped up to being the second most important factor as to mm. whether I would leave my job or not. And then it's sort of rounded out by too much workload for the money, bad team culture, poor management, um, which, you know, all of those are very common reasons across roles to leave a job. Sure. Um, but what we do see is that most chiefs of staff are actually not looking to change jobs. Um, I'm impressed and I continue to be impressed year over year that chiefs of staff cite they want to stay at their company. And so this past year, 58% said, I want to stay at my company in some form or fashion, whether it be expand my role, get more responsibility, um, stay in my same role, or, uh, maybe change departments or something like that. So lateral transition, um, but on the flip side of that, and this is actually, it statistically makes sense, right? 50, 58% wish to stay, 40% of respondents told us they feel their career is completely stalled out due to organizational limitations, meaning there is not that ability to expand on responsibility, or there's not a lateral move they can make. And so they are feeling stuck for whatever reason that is. Um, so yeah, pretty interesting. You know, Chiefs of Staff, are very, very loyal, like much more loyal than most um, roles that we see. But interesting to see, you know, people are really thinking about business conditions and their growth trajectory as the main drivers here. Well, I assume that COVID and the work from home and hybrid and all that had to affect kind of 21, 22, yep. even 20. Like, oh, I like working from home now. So that might yeah. be on, on the environment. I'm curious, you mentioned um, people are not looking to jump to another company, but 
But oftentimes, at least what I see is oftentimes a chief of staff will move to another role within that same company. Mm-hmm. So are you seeing that as kind of a springboard or a just a kind of a step of progression into other types of roles? Yeah, absolutely. And this is a perfect segue. I'm going to flip on to my other research report here. It's called our Pathways Report. And we pulled, again, about 400 uh, plus chiefs of staff worth of data. Uh, we had to scrape LinkedIn and do some crazy data transforms to make that stuff usable. But uh, we looked at former chiefs of staff and what they're doing now. And so this is, I think, the best way you can figure out what do chiefs of staff do. Um, and so what we're now seeing is that titles of chief of staff alumni is what we call them. Co-founder is the most common, oh. then followed by some sort of investing role. I titled this investor, but it's really a bucket of a lot of different types of investment roles. Um, a lot of them stayed as chief of staff, albeit at a different company. And then we see lots of, there's a long tail, just like it becomes a bunch of random stuff, like director of strategy, consulting, head of ops, product manager, ops manager, VP of strategy, COO. Um, and what you'll note is that even the most common thing is a single digit percentage of the entire data set. So what that tells you is that a chief of staff can basically do whatever the hell they want as long yeah, as broad. their skills, background, roles, responsibilities um, basically fit that, uh, whatever that next title is. And so no single title exceeded 10% of our data set. The data set had 55 unique titles, even after I spent a bunch of time standardizing those titles. Um, and this only accounts for the roles that... Uh, were two plus percent of our data set. So there's a massive long tail of roles that are not even pictured here. So it really is a springboard to a whole bunch of different things. I mean, it's so versatile, right? And I I, I mean, some of the more unique things we saw in this data set was someone became a VP of engineering, um, someone became a chief product officer, marketing manager, director of risk analytics, change management lead. So there's some pretty esoteric titles out there uh, that you wouldn't think for a strategy and ops type person. Yeah, for sure. And I was I was smiling at the co-founder piece because I know that um, I work with some chiefs of staff who go into the role and say, I want to learn all there is about the different facets of the business and understand that so I can go and start my own company or I want to be a CEO. And I'm like, that's great. Like chief of staff is absolutely going to give you exposure to all those different areas. And some of them go like, oh, yeah, I want to start my own business and be a CEO. And then they get into the chief of staff role and they're like, oh my gosh, like that's what being a CEO is like? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you you have to make all the hard decisions. Like, no matter what you do, someone's unhappy with you. And I was like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I don't want to be a CEO anymore. So it's, yeah, uh, sure. it is kind of like a mini MBA program in a way, but interesting stuff. So actually, this was my favorite analysis out of the bunch. And this is chief of staff skills by frequency. And so we pulled all of the possible skills that were listed on these LinkedIn profiles. And we got something like 12,000 results and that boiled down to 2,078 unique skills. And so 85% of people in our data set cited leadership as a skill they possessed. And then there's a massive long tail, right? Strategy, management, Microsoft Office is number four. That's a pretty interesting one. Um, and then people do cite the various pieces of office, like Excel is number five, and that's completely unsurprising to me. Um, people also just have like really variable skills here. So someone has, or rather like a third of people said event planning. Um, a third of people said research. Um, 
23% of people said social media. And again, this is like a massive long tail. There's no way to showcase 2,000 skills sure. uh, on the thing here. But what we do see is a lot of chiefs of staff did not cite technical or quantitative skills, with the exception of Excel. Um, and then we do see lots of skills on this chart related to cross-functional collaboration and project management, which I think is really in line with this idea of chief of staff being the glue or the connective tissue of the company. Um, apart from these most common skills, we did see some pretty interesting skills that larger minorities of the group did possess. So 9% of people cited pro product management, 6% cited Photoshop, 4% uh, each cited being able to code in Java, Python, and being able to build websites in HTML. Um, and then 2% each cited doing search engine optimization and separately being, being good at AdWords. And so chiefs of staff do really have like every skill under the sun out there. Uh, we also pulled out a unique skill that only a single person in our data set possessed. And so those included counterinsurgency, oh. ancient history, car racing, gene therapy, animal behavior, floral design, and CNC machining, which is like um, really high, like very low, uh, or rather really low tolerance micron type metal cutting for rocket parts and things like that. Wow. It was uh, the first one counterinsurgency? Is that what you said? Anti-terrorism. Yeah. Counterinsurgency. <laughs> right. God bless that chief of staff. Um, yeah, for real. And I think the some of the things you were mentioning, like Photoshop and social media, a lot of chiefs of staff are involved with like sales operations, marketing, yeah. kind of um, biz dev, all that sort of stuff. So that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, I think a lot of this is just stuff you pick up along the way in the role. Yeah. All right. This um, is really interesting. Anything else that you think is is good to share here? Yeah, we've got a couple of cool things here. I know we're uh, probably going to come up on our a lot of time soon, so I'll try and be snappy about That's it. That's all right. No, this is great. And uh, I'll try and blow this one up because these charts are a little bit smaller here. Uh, no, sorry. There. So this next one is current functions of Chief of Staff Alumni. So we took the titles and then we bucketed them into functions. Um, and so what we see is that 18% of these people do operations in some form or fashion now, 14% do strategy, 13% do growth, um, 11% are some sort of founder or executive, and that encompasses co-founder, general manager, board member, um, something like that, that is really at the top tier of the company. Uh, and then we've got a long tail of everything else, you know, being in a technical role or product role, being an investor, being a chief of staff again, being in HR or uh, like ESG, DEI type roles. Um, and so what's really interesting is that more chiefs of staff are ending up in growth and technology products type roles than people, HR, ESG type roles, given that so many chiefs of staff, especially in startups, deal with HR problems. Um, what's also interesting to me is very few chiefs of staff end up in legal compliance and finance, uh, which I think somewhat makes sense given the infrequency of the relevant technical skills in the last analysis. But at least anecdotally, we do see a lot of people, you know, sometimes pinch hitting on legal or compliance or finance. So I was surprised by the lack of prevalence here. They might they might have been involved and said, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, um, maybe. I'm but just joking. It's uh, it's interesting. What what is um, investing? So you've had that on the previous chart too. And is that is that like private? So that is, is becoming that an investor in some form or fashion. Going back to you know investment banking, private equity, venture capital, yeah. running a family office, something like that. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then we also broke this down by seniority because it's it's interesting to figure out, you know, what are chiefs of staff doing, not just in terms of title function, but what level are they after? And so 48% of chiefs of staff either end up in manager or director type roles. And that's interesting because it runs counter to this narrative that chief of staff is the launch pad to an executive role. Really, what you're ending up at is middle management here uh, rather than something much more senior. Uh, but I will grant you 39% of these alumni chief of staff have landed ahead of CXO or VP titles. But it's not enough to suggest that taking a COS role makes getting ahead of or an exec title guaranteed. Shoe in, yeah. And the thing that actually surprises me the most is why are there chiefs of staff uh, taking these more junior titles. And so especially on the investment side, most of these chief of staffs are becoming analysts or associates. And we speculate this is because you can't really become a partner in VC, at least, unless you're an exited founder yourself. And most chiefs of staff are not exited founders. Um, it is a launch pad to becoming a founder, as we did see above. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm kind of questioning the redeployment to manager or director level because I know yeah. a lot of companies use, they, they have a chief of staff for two years and then they rotate it to someone else. But then after you do your your time as chief of staff, you're redeployed as like a VP of something. And then they like that because you have a greater understanding of the of the entire breadth of the company. And so they do that on purpose. They rotate chiefs of staff for two years and then they redeploy them at a VP or higher level. So it's interesting that someone would go back to, to manager or director. Yeah. Um, I do have some interesting demographic data that we don't have to go through all of it, but before we flip over there, what we did pull out was interesting chief of staff examples. Um, and so, for example, there's uh, Ben Kasnocha. He used to be chief of staff to Reed Hoffman. He, while he was with Reed Hoffman, they co-wrote a bunch of books together, and that like really increased his uh, prominence in the field. And like, he is the chief of staff's chief of staff. A lot of people <laughs> know him for being Reed's uh, first chief of staff. And now he runs a very large uh, venture fund called Village Global. Um, there's another really cool chief of staff out there named Cindy Morse. Uh, she worked at Exact Target, which got acquired by Salesforce. Um, then she became chief of staff to Brett Taylor, who for a while was co-CEO there, and then took over Slack as CEO. Um, so like, pretty cool story. What you can gather from a lot of these examples is these people were typically in a chief of staff and VP role, or they went from chief of staff into a VP role. And that seems to be the formula that catapults you into a CXO role at a multi-billion plus revenue company. Um, so that sort of thing happened for Robin Meredith Gainsight, for Kyle Daigle at GitHub. And that makes uh, sense. Maxine. I mean, that makes sense to me. So, yeah. oh yeah. So you could, if, you, if you look at this chart, like literally the step right before the yeah, CXO role is like Almost always VP. Yeah. Like chief of staff, VP, COO. Chief of staff, VP, CFO. Um, chief of staff, marketing director. So that was a little bit lower, but this is also a non-publicly traded company, so the hierarchy is a little wonky. Um, and then CMO. And then uh, analyst, VP, and chief of staff, CPO. So it seems to be the formula, as far as we can tell, of being, if you're a VP and a chief of staff, it's pretty likely you're going to become a CXO. Yeah, no, that mean that path makes far more sense to me than chief of staff kind of going back, if you will, to manager. 
Um, but, you know, maybe manager at whatever company they're in means something else. So, yes, it's so, possible. Semantics. All right. And then so I can flip through a little bit of the demographic data of our data set. So, again, there's female male skewness, like we saw in the last data set. Um, over the last seven years, we've just seen over all the reports we've ever done, the majority of chief staff are female to the point that we were making in our conversation right. about this. And that says 60 um, to about 40, so 60% female, 40% male. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So it's not like 90%. No, no, no. It's not like a massive break, but it's a majority for sure. Majority, yep. Okay. Um, and then we've got degree. So most people had bachelors, a decent amount had MBA, some form had some other master's. And actually, only a single person in the data set had a PhD, which I think <laughs> makes sense. Like, if you're going to do that amount of education, you probably don't want to go, go deep in something. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, being a hyper specialist doesn't yeah. match with being the generalist generalist, which is what the chief staff role is. Um, what we then saw is locations. This also makes sense because we're looking at historical chiefs of staff. And what we've seen is that the chief of staff role has been most popular in some of these tier one cities. Um, and we've seen the emergence in Asia, Latin, Africa more recently. But really, this data set is looking at people who were chiefs of staff, you know, before 2020 or something like that. It's interesting. I One one might surmise that Washington, D.C. might have more just because it's a role that's kind of familiar in the political realm. But that seems to be kind of on the lower end, too. We filtered out uh, government and nonprofit. In the okay, so this is business. Okay, question. business. All right. Um, and then tenure. This was actually bafflingly interesting in a lot of ways. Like we often hear, you know, 18 to 36 months. That's the tenure. The data says that's true, but there's also a massive drop at zero to 12, meaning people don't even make it a year in the role. Um, and exceedingly few make it past five years in that 84 to 90 month mark. Um so I think what, what describes this is that some people might have been impacted by COVID. And so we did collect a, a decent amount of data from people who were chiefs of staff in like 2020, 2021, but let, that's like the most recent. And so, you know, some people may have been impacted by layoffs, but I will also say is that this particular chart is a much smaller subset of the overall data set because it's very hard to find reliable tenure data. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think too, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough job and it's a lot of people think it's something else. So they have one impression expectation. Once they get in there, it's like, oh my goodness, it's this thing. So that, I mean, if I had to guess my thin slice of that data point would be people just get in there and are like, holy cow, this is, this is intense or it's, it's vague and nebulous versus empirical and I can measure things neatly. So, okay. Interesting. And then there's like a little blip over on the, what does that say, 84 yeah. to 90 months? Yeah, so what we do see is some people want to be lifetime chiefs of staff. <laughs> they love the job. They're just going to do it forever. So there are some of those people out there, for sure. Okay. Um, so I'll flip into, uh, we have some demographic charts. This is the most interesting one, and then I'll stop here. Um, so we have an example of gender versus seniority of the new title. And so what we see is that women comprise the majority at each level, except the head of title, where they're slightly edged out by men. It's 52% men, 48% women. But in every other uh, area, it's like 58% plus women. 
Um, and so we believe the prevalence of women at each level just stems from the simple fact that COS is skewed towards women. Yep. Um, but And so again, we have, don't have a conclusive answer as to why that is true. But uh, if people do have a hypothesis, please let me know, because I do want to get to the bottom of that one day. Uh, as long as it is not a third rail that ends my career at some point. But, yeah. What's the gender and function piece down below? Yeah. So this is, does gender impact what end function you're in? So what we saw is that women predominantly are ending up in chief of staff, people, and legal and compliance roles. And that was interesting. And then we saw that no women ended up in finance roles after, like internal corp finance, not investing. Wow. Um, and so we suspect some of that skewedness is just because the financial services industry as a whole means male. And so if you've got the skills to do corp finance, you probably come out of a bank. The banks are already male. And so there's a funnel problem there. Um, it, and so it doesn't even know, like decrease in a linear fashion. It just drops off. It drops. <laughs> it drops. I mean, admittedly, there were probably fewer respondents in that finance sure, role okay. relative to the ops, the strategy, all that stuff. Okay. Um, but yeah, what we do see is that overall women are uh, landing themselves in future chief of staff roles, people, ESG, legal compliance. Um, there's a MISC bucket, which is just like all the roles that we didn't have a home for. Yeah. So like imagine the most random titles you could think of. That's what hits that bucket. Uh, yeah. But So that's where we land. But really, ultimately, I think actually to some degree, this analysis is uninteresting because so many chiefs of staff are female. Well, so on that point, so thank you so much for sharing in all this data and walking walking through it, because I think your commentary kind of helps people with context. But if uh, to the data collection piece, if if people want to be part of the next study or report or want to make sure that their their information is is being counted in all this, how do they do that? Yeah. So if you want to get the report, there's a little form you have to fill out on the website that actually enables us to collect your email. And we will then reach out next year or rather the latter, latter half of this year when we do this again. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. And for those listening, please sign up for that. It's a great resource. Again, we'll have the link in the show notes. And then please, please participate the, the next year because it helps out the community. And um, I think there's a lot of good information that comes from it. So we'll just do a, a quick plug for it like that. But thank okay. you so much for your for your time and information. You've just been so generous with with both of those. And I really appreciate it. And I know that people have this question and they ask it to me all the time. And so now I'll have a kind of a go-to resource to point them to. So thank you. Yeah, of course. It was great to be here. I think this is one of the parts of my job I love the most because there is nothing more gratifying than seeing someone earn more, be more valued, get a great promotion, leave the role and found something, you know, whatever their path may be, seeing people learn and grow and develop and make a ton of money in a lot of ways is really good. Like that's why we exist is to accelerate the trajectories of chiefs of staff. I think when you can help someone get paid for what they're worth and the good work they're yes. doing, then that's always, that's always a good day. But this is an absolutely great resource for that because it takes something kind of amorphous and vague to a lot of people and distills it down into empirically in charts and graphs. Here's, here's what the chief of staff does and here's how much I should get paid. So um, thank you once again. And I'm happy to have you back to talk about anything else um, the chief of staff network, network is doing. And uh, we will call this a wrap for now. But thank you so much, Raul. Ooh, yeah, awesome. And excited to come back someday, hopefully. Beautiful. 
Help us in our mission to cultivate and promote exceptional leadership. A simple like or share of this episode can go a long way. Emily, me the British guy, and the United Kingdom extend its gratitude. <laughs>